Steve mentioned to me that he had invested a large sum of money. He said it was up in the millions. Man, he just looked on his face like somebody was messing with his money. And that he was told that he lost the whole investment. For the last two years of Steve's life, Steve wanted a divorce from his wife, but she would not give him one. There were some issues about Steve's infidelity. Steve was the one messing around. My Mac ain't got nothing to do with that. And why would you take anything out on her? That will is very important, signed or unsigned. He was doing the same thing Steve always done, but he just was more careless about it. I would really like to see where the money went. When I dreamed, they were just in the club, like, dancing and laughing, and we got all the money now, we got all the money now. Steve's death is not just about his relationship with a 20-year-old girl. His death is about money and power. This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. From the first time I met Vincent Hill, back in the summer of 2017, he's been willing to discuss the Steve McNair case at any moment, any time of day. There were nights, especially in the beginning, where we'd be at dinner or just up late on the phone at some unreasonable hour, discussing various aspects of the case, dissecting the police report, diagramming the main players, diving in all the rumors and theories. And most of the time, I'd just let Vincent go. I'd sit back and listen. Before I ventured out on my own, I wanted to know what Vincent knew, or rather, what Vincent thought he knew. When I found him, he'd been investigating the McNair case for eight years. He'd written two books and done several TV interviews discussing his findings, all in his spare time. I got the sense that Vincent liked having someone with whom he could discuss all this. After a while, though, my knowledge of the case finally caught up with Vincent's. He started going on about some theory, and I could challenge him or gently correct him. Then he started repeating himself. He'd bring up things we'd already discussed. He told me multiple times, I've forgotten more about this case than most people have ever heard. He loved to say that. After about 10 months of this, in the spring of 2018, the theories and the crazy rumors started to run together. It was getting hard to keep things straight in my own head, with Vincent in my ear. And so I reached out to the people who oversaw the McNair investigation for the Nashville Police Department, people who could respond to these questions and theories I'd been discussing with Vincent Hill. If Vincent was poking holes, these were the guys whose work he was poking. Maybe there was something they could point me to that I wasn't seeing. Maybe they knew something that Vincent didn't, something that, for whatever reason, wasn't in the police file. I started with Ron Serpass, the former Nashville chief of police. Less than a year after closing the McNair case, Serpass had left Nashville to run the New Orleans Police Department, and now he was teaching criminology at Loyola University. He wasn't in Nashville anymore. Maybe he'd be more willing to shed light on the case. I met Serpass at his office down in New Orleans, and as we started talking, he seemed eager to defend his officer's work in the McNair case and discredit Vincent Hill. When someone of Mr. McNair's stature dies, it gets a lot of attention. And then there's a lot of people who, for good reasons, oftentimes and oftentimes for reasons unknown, want to create their own narrative. This is what they think. You know, I think we even had a former police officer who might have got on television and said some things. And as far as I remember, never really investigated a murder in his life, you know. But in the end of the investigation, I am absolutely confident of the finding they had of a murder-suicide. I don't think there's any question. There's people who probably still don't believe that. Fair enough. Uh, But the evidence and the work, I think, was overwhelming. I wanted to talk about that evidence. Surpass, though, wanted to talk about his detectives and how much he trusted them. When Steve McNair, a local Nashville hero, turned up dead in July 2009, Surpass called upon his homicide cold case unit. This was a group comprised of his best, most experienced detectives. They handled cold cases and high-profile murders. 
and Surpass told me emphatically he trusted their work. In Ron Surpass's mind, all of this comes down to who do you trust? The Nashville PD's cold case unit or Vincent Hill, a former police officer who's never investigated a homicide? Certainly at that time, I don't know what Mr. Hill's past, you know, what his future's been since then. But at that time, the fact that someone who has never investigated a serious crime like a homicide doesn't mean that sometimes a, a rookie officer doesn't stumble across a great case. But he wasn't even employed at the time. The other thing is that, just like I'm sure journalism, the first time you do an interview isn't going to be as good as the 1,000th time you've done an interview. And that's what happens with investigators. They, they learn from experience. They learn from making mistakes. They learn from managing scenes. And oftentimes it takes quite a while before someone is really an experienced homicide, sex assault, robbery. They pick up experience that is crucial that you don't always get in the classroom, that you don't always get from reading a report, that you don't always get from watching a show. It's when you actually do an interview across the table from someone and learn how that goes. So that's important. Nobody was angry at Mr. Hill. Nobody in the police department, including myself, was like, what is this crazy guy doing? No, nothing like that. He had his opinion. He had 15 minutes to tell it to the media, and we just kept doing the case and moving forward. In the end, Surpass didn't really offer any concrete answers. He didn't reveal any key piece of evidence that would further implicate Jenny Kazemi or cement the police's case. But he did suggest if anything new came up, Nashville PD would consider it. What can happen in investigations, though, and putting this one aside for a minute, time often can bring new information nobody knew about. Right? We have people in prison that are being released every day because, you know, decades later, a key piece of information that no one ever knew about should have, could have, maybe, but didn't know. And then suddenly you go, wow. And the police will go back. That's why cold case units are so successful. A needed is they'll go back and say, wow, we, nobody knew this piece of information. It changes the whole dynamic. Could that happen here? I don't know. Given the scene evidence, given the investigation, I think it'd be highly unlikely. I left New Orleans with more questions than answers. But then I got a call from Don Aaron, the spokesman for the Nashville PD. He wanted to know... What was this project I was working on? Aaron was the gatekeeper to the guy I really needed to speak to, Pat Pastiglione, the detective in charge of the cold case unit back in July 2009. Pastiglione was retired from the police force now, but I'd messaged him over Facebook and LinkedIn, and he apparently reached out to Don Aaron asking who I was and what I was doing. Pastiglione had asked Aaron, I wonder if he's trying to take the Vincent Hill approach. The Nashville PD had seen people try to take the Vincent Hill approach before. Don Aaron told me the investigators had responded to all those questions already. They'd shot down all that speculation and guessing years ago. So, he asked me, you're essentially asking us to engage in a debate with Vincent Hill, with you being the moderator? As Don and I spoke, though, it came out that Sports Illustrated had never really published a significant story on the McNair case. When McNair died, the magazine had been on what we call a dark week, one of several periods each year without an issue. This one on the account of the 4th of July holiday. SI published a one-page obit in the issue dated July 13, 2009, and that was it. Steve McNear's name hadn't been printed in SI in a non-football context since, and Don Aaron seemed intrigued by this. Maybe he thought he could finally put all these questions to rest. Maybe it would all just die down if he orchestrated one last big sit-down with a national publication. And so, he agreed to set up an interview. I would meet with Pistiglione, who oversaw the case, and Charles Robinson, one of his lead investigators. 
And so, in early May, almost nine years after the Steve McNair case was closed, we all gathered at the East Precinct of the Nashville PD in a nondescript conference room. I would get Pastiglione and Robinson for just 30 minutes. Don Aaron was there watching the clock. So as Don said, you summarize the findings. I don't know, is there anything that you wanted to summarize before I started asking questions or anything? It was very thorough, a very um, deliberate investigation, you know, into uh, what had occurred. In- That's Pastiglione. The evidence clearly indicates it's a murder-suicide versus any other scenario. Uh, double homicide, for example, we know that scenario's come up or that, uh, I guess that allegation has come up uh, several times, but the evidence clearly uh, supports a uh, murder-suicide with Hale Kasimi being the person that shot Steve and then sat on his lap and then shot herself and then slowly slid off his lap and fell onto the floor. And the evidence clearly backs that up. And all the other scenarios that are brought in are, apparently are being brought in by people that have no idea what the crime scene looked like, have no investigative experience. I mean, zero investigative experience. But yet throw out these allegations, and it, it just some of the allegations are actually ludicrous. It was pure speculation in many cases. There was no validity to some of the stuff. Okay, well, if this guy didn't do it, then maybe you believe this guy did it. Well, if this guy didn't do it, maybe you believe that his wife was somehow involved Absolutely. and just seeing what was sticking. And it was just, it was, it was actually ridiculous. And, and the fact that we had to go through that was a little frustrating, but that's something that we did. And Chuck and Norris did a thorough investigation. I was involved from the very beginning and I, and I understood what the investigation entailed. So I was supportive of these guys totally. I asked about Adrian Gilliam, the ex-con who allegedly sold Jenny Kazemi the murder weapon, the gun police believe she used to kill Steve McNair. The police didn't seem to have any evidence that the gun sale even took place. No surveillance footage, no witnesses, just what Gilliam told them. I asked, was there any additional evidence that this gun sale had even occurred? Was there anything they knew that maybe didn't appear in their report? Here's Robinson. I looked as much at video as I could at the parking lot, but keep in mind that, that mall at that time was panning, so it don't capture everything in the in the um, uh, parking lot, So, because it's panning, it pans back and forth. And, um, I so, thought there was something on there that showed showed his car. It may have, I don't remember. I thought I remember something on there showing his car. It didn't show the actual sale right. of the gun or anything, transaction right. or anything like right. that. The surveillance camera in the parking lot of Dave & Buster's was panning, so it didn't capture everything. What did it show? Robinson doesn't remember. This would be a theme throughout our conversation. They didn't remember. To be fair, I was asking two guys who've worked hundreds of cases like this to recall details from a murder that took place nine years ago. They clearly haven't been obsessing over the Steve McNair case the same way Vincent Hill has. I asked about Gilliam's alibi. Remember, Gilliam said he was over at his friend Tony Smith's house in the early hours of July 4th, 2009, around the same time Steve McNair was murdered. But when police followed up with Smith, he was adamant that Adrian Gilliam had not been in his house that night. We followed up on it as best we could. Um, Tony, the, the guy that you're talking about, you know, there were some questions about his credibility as well. So that part, I was never able to come to a, a real conclusion about whether or not Adrian was uh, Gilliam was at his house or not that night. They admit, sure, maybe Gilliam wasn't at Tony Smith's house that night after all. But then they add nonchalantly, by the way, Tony Smith didn't seem that credible either. It's unclear where exactly they're getting that from, and they don't elaborate. But the police did seem to verify that Gilliam wasn't at Steve McNair's house on the night of the murder either. Remember, at one press conference, the police said Gilliam's phone had pinged off cell phone towers in the Smyrna area, about 25 miles from Steve McNair's condo, at the time of McNair's death. 
Vincent Hill asks, couldn't Gilliam have just ditched his phone in Smyrna to trick the cell phone towers? Or maybe somebody else could have been calling from Gilliam's phone. Very important to understand that his cell tower records are going off 15 to 20 miles away from downtown Nashville. And it's not just his cell phone being used. The people who he's communicating with are people he communicated with. It'd be like, if we get your cell phone and we see all these different numbers on there, we say, well, maybe someone had your cell phone. Well, he's out there communicating with people that we confirmed, so we know he's out in that area when Steve McNair's being killed. So you guys contacted the people that he was yes. talking to yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He so. confirmed the people, confirmed the numbers. That's something you would typically do to make sure that he, he, it's not just Joe Blow with the phone, but it's him with the phone. We want to put him with the phone at the time the cell tower says he was at such and such a location. And, and, that, and that's what was done. Okay, but what about Wayne Neely and Robert Gaddy, Steve McNair's two friends who found the bodies? Why did they wait so long to call the police? That always struck me as a totally valid question. When Wayne Neely found two people shot inside Steve McNair's condo, he didn't call 911. He dialed up Gaddy instead. Then Neely waited for Gaddy to get there. 44 minutes passed before they called the police. Wait a minute, 44 minutes. It took Gaddy about that much time to drive. Now, he's he driving did. from, I think, Goodlesville, Madison area. He, when, when Wayne called him, he had to drive from home. So it didn't take, he didn't like sit up, oh, okay, let's, let's talk about this for 40-something minutes. We're talking about the drive from home and to the think- city. This doesn't resolve anything, but what they're saying here is the drive from Gaddy's house to McNair's condo in downtown Nashville is about 22 miles. It's possible it just took Gaddy quite a while to get there, maybe longer than he thought, driving in the early afternoon of July 4th. Never mind that Gaddy is the one who said he sped all the way there. The Nashville police have also said that they think Gaddy and Neely may have just lost track of time. Ron Surpass, the former police chief, talked about this when I interviewed him. I think that what happens is people will inherently see time minutes in their reference, not having just seen the death of their best friend, right? So 44 minutes is a concern to the police, obviously, right? We're going to say, wow, that was a long time. But perhaps... We also have to recognize, and I think our investigators are well-trained, that, you know, when you're in that kind of a circumstance, your your spatial orientation is totally turned upside down. When you are in a near-death experience or you see something as dramatic as Mr. McNair's death scene, your brain doesn't work the same. Your, your heartbeat changes. Your blood pressure changes. Your vision changes. Everything changes. So... Police officers and detectives are going to be incredibly aware of those minutes. They're going to recount those minutes. They're going to rebuild those minutes. But as a general principle, you you don't really want to get too far too quick that that time existed. Robinson and Pastiglione told me that they did take a look at Neely and Gaddy and that they cleared them both. I asked, was Michelle McNair, Steve's widow, ever considered a person of interest? Anytime you start an investigation, everything's open. But there was no evidence leading to... Michelle McNair being involved in this case whatsoever, other than mere speculation. I'm angry at her. I don't like her. She had to be involved. That we don't, there's no evidence pointing to Michelle being involved in this case, none whatsoever. Vincent would still argue there's at least motive, but I think the attention on Michelle falls under a broader complaint. There's so much about this case that feels off. So many people who have lied, who might have benefited from Steve's death, who had beef with Steve... How could you have properly investigated every one of those people in just four days? There is evidence that Steve was out there and he was playing with fire. There's no Absolutely. question about that. And, and not, not just with Miss Cassimi, but with, with other people he was involved with. And he, he was really walking a very fine line 
and he put himself in a very difficult position. He really did, and that, that's really what, what needs to be looked at, uh, what he was doing himself. Absolutely. D- days leading up, up, up to this, who he was with, who he was spending time with, uh, why he was going to this condo. Why, why was he even involved in that condo? He, he had a beautiful home. Why was he going to the condo? That kind of thing. Well, see, everybody I, everybody kind of wants to gloss over all that. Right. Well, I know, but you say something like that, like he was involved with, you know, other people and different, you know, and that stokes the, I don't know, speculation for for people. Well, no, like, we, yeah. we understand that, but all those people didn't kill him. We know right. who killed him. It was one of, one of the people that he was associating with that he shouldn't have been associating with, who, who was, who was uh, first of all, very young, who was um, uh, mentally um, unstable. So he, he, had, he didn't realize right. the difficulty of the situation he was right. in. Mentally unstable. We'll come back to that idea. Every time I tried asking about other people, other potential suspects, Pastiglione and Robinson kept steering me back to Jenny. They kept repeating the same tagline. The evidence clearly pointed to a murder-suicide. I could see how Lucille McNair could get exhausted talking to these guys. And so I asked them, what was this evidence they had that was so overwhelming? Because I just wasn't seeing it in the case file. You guys saw the crime scene, like you have all the evidence. And I think even at the time, back in 2009, you said that the science showed that she killed him and then killed herself. And I think just reading the police report or, you know, what's available, I don't have the same information you guys do. So what, what is the science that kind of showed, that proved in your guys' mind that that was the only thing that could have happened? She, she had the, the GSR on her hand. Um, one hand couldn't be tested because it was bloody. But the hand that could be taken, that was GSR, which is gunshot residue, on her hand that showed that she fired a weapon. Steve's hand was also checked. He didn't have any on his hand. Remember, Jenny was found to have trace levels of gunshot residue on her left hand and nothing on her right. And the gun expert I spoke to said the Nashville PD is overstating its case here. The police don't have enough evidence to demonstrate with confidence in court that Jenny fired the weapon. In addition to the, to the they, they did laser angles on, on the bullet trajectory from Steve and from Kasimi, and she was clearly sitting on his lap. She wanted to be found, it's our theory, she wanted to be found on his lap when the bodies were discovered. She initially was on his lap and her DNA was on his chest yes. up here. Her body was on the ground, so we know she initially was up here. She shot herself through the right temple and the bullet went, and, and they, they did the laser light, and it lined up perfectly. So she was seated here. I never heard that before about the laser. That's on the police report. The Nashville PD had said in the summary report that Jenny had been seated next to Steve when she shot herself, not in his lap. But here, Pastiglione says that Jenny was sitting on Steve's lap. It's possible he's just misremembering. Say Jenny was sitting on Steve's lap, though. That doesn't guarantee she fired the gun. She could have also been sitting on Steve's lap when someone else shot her. The evidence leaves room for that theory, too. So you're saying that if seated her body was seated on his lap, like yeah. sitting on his lap, and then you did the laser of if she were to shoot herself in the temple. It, and it lined up perfectly. And her DNA, I think, Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong, they, I think they, they found her DNA, I think, in the wall, and the, the bullet, it was some of her DNA, were able to to, right. to confirm that it was the bullet, right. the projectile. Right. And, um, and, then, and then gravity pulled her down, and she fell, and then she fell on top of the pistol. Yes. And there was a lot of bleeding. And the pistol, when you when you lift the body up and you lift the pistol up, you can see the clear on the carpet that the pistol laid there and all the blood accumulated around the pistol. But all this still assumes that Jenny was capable of pulling off a murder this gruesome. I asked, how was Jenny able to shoot Steve four times, once in each temple and twice in the chest, with such precision? 
if, by all accounts, she was a completely novice shooter. And that's not just a Vincent question. Everyone from Lucille McNair to Chris Wall to Jerry Fletcher had some version of that question. A couple of the shots was within three feet. So we're not talking about this one. This is almost close as me and you. You don't have to have a whole lot of experience to make a shot from that distance. We're not talking about long distance shot here. We're talking about close up shots, close to the person that, that, that you're shooting at. Robinson says they were close up shots. Let's examine that. The autopsy report does say that the shot to Steve's right temple was a contact wound, meaning that the muzzle of the gun was pressed directly against his skin, or within a few inches. But the other three shots, the two to Steve's chest and the one to his other temple, were described as distance perforating gunshot wounds. The key word there is distant. Dr. Feng Li, the forensic pathologist who performed Steve's autopsy, explained to me that in terms of distance from the gunman to the victim, there are three ways to characterize gunshot wounds. Contact, intermediate, and distant. Contact is a shot made close to the skin. An intermediate shot is made within two to three feet. And a distant shot is anything further than that. Here's Dr. Lee. So anything above two and a half feet to three feet, we call they are distant. Whether it's five feet, 10 feet, 100 feet, they appear the same on the skin to my eyes or to other experts' eyes. Examining just the wounds to the body, Dr. Lee could not say then with certainty how far away those other three shots came from. The firearms report does say that after examining McNair's shirt and his undershirt, it was determined that the shots to Steve's chest were likely made from a distance of two to four feet. But it's unclear how far the shot to Steve's left temple came from. There was no garment for them to examine. The shot could have been made from three to four feet away, as Robinson claims, or it could have been 10 feet away, 20 feet away. We don't know. It's a distance shot, so the wound looks the same. Whatever the distance, though, what was Jenny's motive as the shooter? Jenny's sister Amanda and a bunch of Jenny's friends told me she wasn't upset about the DUI, that she wasn't heartbroken over Steve cheating on her, and that she wasn't broke. Boys, money, she was set on those fronts. At least they didn't think she was upset enough over any of those things to kill herself. But the investigators on this case, they clearly thought otherwise. You got to look at her background. What she's been through, uh, her, her mental stability at the time this occurred. She was apparently having some mental issues. She had a lot of problems. That's one of the reasons, and this was talking to her family. They told me that she had experienced, I think her father killed her mother in Iran, and she had had problems from that, from that time on. So to say now that she was perfectly fine, come on, that's not rational. That, right there, I think her father killed her mother in Iran. Let's talk about that. ESPN reported part of this in 2010, and we've covered this before. According to family members, Jenny's mother was killed in Tehran when she was about nine years old. But that detail about her father being the killer, that's not out there. And you know what? I found zero evidence that it's true. My reporting suggests that it's just another rumor. It is, however, something I'd heard before. When I sat down with Christy Rudolph, one of Jenny's good friends, Christy brought up the subject of Jenny's mother's death unprompted. She was telling me about a side of Jenny I hadn't heard that much about yet. We just went out. What did we go? We went to eat at Steak and Shake one time. And I go, Jenny, why are you so harsh sometimes? Because Jenny could be cold, even though she was a sweetheart. If you really knew Jenny, you'd know that she could be cold sometimes. It's hard to explain. I don't know. She was just really cold-hearted sometimes. And I asked her, 
well, why are you like that sometimes? One time we went to the Walmart and I we ran into my mom and I go to introduce my mom to Jenny and Jenny just walks past and keeps walking like she didn't even see my mom, like my mom didn't even exist. <laughs> and I'm like, that's really rude. Like, why would you do something like that? She was like, Chrissy, you know, I've been through a lot that made me hard. Like, I don't trust anybody. Like, my own dad murdered my mom in front of me when I was like three years old. Like, I don't trust anyone. And I, and I was like shocked that she would even open up to me and tell me something like that. So when she told me that, I put everything together and I just kind of realized why she was the way that she was. And she witnessed the murder of her mother by her father's hand, you know? So that really took a toll on Jenny. What do you remember her telling you about those, those incidents? Because her mother's thing is, I don't think I realized or knew that her father had done it, but. Yeah, her yeah. father did it. What did she tell you about that? She told me, she said, you know, my dad killed my mom right in front of me. But she was like, you know, that traumatized me for life. So it appears that Jenny may have been the person who planted this seed. I should note, there's an anecdote in the police report that suggests it wouldn't be beyond her to make up something like this. I checked in with three of Jenny's other friends. Had they ever heard this? And only Lucretia Polite remembered anything along these lines. She said she never spoke to Jenny about it. She just heard it around. She didn't remember where. She called it a rumor. As you've heard throughout this podcast, rumors are an integral part of the story of Steve McNair's death. You've heard rumors about how it happened, about why it happened, about who may have been involved. And while you can dismiss and debunk rumors, in this case, you cannot ignore them. They fuel skepticism and intrigue. Rumors are what have kept friends and family, and really so many Nashvillians interested in this case all these years later. These rumors inform people's opinions, people's actions. When Vincent Hill relayed to Lucille McNair, that her son may have been castrated, Doc Simpson wanted to exhume Steve McNair's body so they could check. That all started with a rumor. But now we have a rumor being peddled by the Nashville police. Here they are saying that Jenny's father killed her mother and that it affected Jenny a great deal. If that were true, it'd be a pretty devastating piece of character evidence. You hear something like that and it changes how you think about the entire case. Maybe Jenny was unstable enough to murder her boyfriend, this guy who was cheating on her. I know that thought crossed my mind. I would later ask Don Aaron, the police spokesman, where did this come from? Did investigators verify this? Aaron checked with Pastiglione and Robinson and he reported back, they think they heard it from one of Jenny's relatives, but they couldn't remember which one. Looking through the police report, it appears they only interviewed one of Jenny's relatives, her nephew, Farzan Abdi. The police notes from Farzan's interview don't mention anything about Jenny's father though. I requested the raw audio from that interview, but the police never gave me the tape. I asked Don then, how much did the story about Jenny and her father factor in the police's determination of a murder-suicide? He told me they had reached their conclusion based on, quote, the totality of the investigation, interviews, physical evidence, scientific findings. He said that this bit of information was, quote, of interest, but that it wasn't significant in the murder-suicide determination. Robinson, though, had brought this up during our interview in response to a question about the facts of the case with a microphone in front of him. Given 30 minutes to outline the police's case against Jenny Kazemi, Robinson said that Kazemi's father had killed her mother in Iran and that she had problems from that time on. He said, quote, To say now that she was perfectly fine? Come on, that's not rational. I tried confirming this information about Jenny's parents on my own. I reached out to a few journalists with ties to Iran to see if someone might be able to track down the police report from Jenny's mother's death. They asked for some basic information about Jenny and her family, and that's when our search hit a wall. Jenny's mother practiced the Baha'i religious faith, 
which is outlawed and persecuted in Iran. I was told that if a reporter were to start asking about documents related to anyone with this background, authorities would likely flag it as political or human rights related, or even some form of spying. It was dangerous to even go looking for basic police records. And so I went back to Jenny's sister, Amanda, to talk about what Pastiglione said, about what Christy told me regarding her and Jenny's parents. And Amanda's first reaction was, what the fuck? They were wrong, she said. Their father didn't kill their mother. And further, Jenny couldn't have seen her mother killed. She was at her other sister's house that day. The Nashville police were making up lies, Amanda said, lies to paint Jenny in a negative light. It just surprises me, she said, that those people in charge and in power will use something like that and say something that there is no evidence to prove. I don't know where they came up with this information, but to release that to you just to ruin a family's reputation, that's just wrong on so many levels. She suggested that the police were, quote, trying to justify their shitty investigation. I asked Amanda if she put me in touch with her father. His name had been redacted from Jenny's immigration papers, leaving the family as my sole means of reaching him. And Amanda declined. She explained simply, he's very old. She didn't seem to want to bother him with talk about Jenny's death. A few weeks later, just as we were taping this episode, I was told that Jenny and Amanda's father had died. I heard that from Farzan Abdi. That's Jenny's nephew, the relative who spoke to the police back in 2009. After Jenny's mother was killed, Farzan's mother, Jenny's older sister, Sohela, became Jenny's guardian. Farzan is about eight years older than Jenny, but they grew up together. Sohela raised them together under the same roof. Farzan told me the same thing as Amanda. He said Jenny's father did not kill her mother. I asked him, where then would the police have gotten that from? I have no idea, he said. I don't know where they got it from or who said such things, but the whole thing is just a cover-up for something a lot bigger. He admitted that, like any teenager, Jenny had been a troubled kid growing up, but he said she had turned her life around. There it was again, troubled kid. Robinson had used similar language. He said Jenny had problems growing up. This same sentiment had also come up a few times in the police report. It was always a passing mention. No one ever seemed to go into any detail. I needed to know, what did Farzan mean by troubled kid? Fall of a Titan is brought to you by Hims, a new wellness brand for men. Did you know 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 35? The thing is, it's easier to keep the hair you have than replace the hair you've lost. Beginning to notice a bald spot? Or is your hairline receding? Well, Hims is here to help. Hims is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, and sexual wellness for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and gives you medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. There's no waiting room, no awkward in-person doctor visits. Just answer a few quick questions and a doctor can prescribe you. Then the products are shipped directly to your door. Listeners of this podcast can get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today while supplies last. This would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or to a pharmacy. You can redeem your trial offer and get the full details at 4 slash Titan. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Titan. 4 slash Titan. I wanted to know about Jenny's troubled childhood, so I reached out to the records clerk in Clay County, a small rural area just outside Jacksonville. That's where Jenny had lived during her high school days with her sister Sohela. When the sheriff's office saw my records request, their public information officer contacted me directly. He actually remembered encountering Jenny. Around the time Jenny started high school, Sergeant Keith Smith was working in a group called Community Oriented Policing. He and his partner would ride around on bicycles, chatting with people and getting to know the families in the neighborhood. 
Sergeant Smith told me he remembered Jenny as being a nice, quiet girl. But he also recalls that Sohela started coming to him with concerns about her. Come to find out she's sneaking out of the house at night and those kind of things. So mom gets involved with us because she sees us out there and befriends us. So we kind of reach out to mom and we're just trying to give her ideas and avenues on what she can do. Sergeant Smith seemed to think that Sohela was Jenny's mom. He wasn't that far off. Sohela was Jenny's older sister, her guardian. And Sohela was apparently concerned that Jenny was falling into the wrong crowd. You know, just talking about concerns that she had in school, concerns that she had going on with her friend, concerns that mom had when she was kind of hanging out with maybe people that she shouldn't have been hanging out with and mom worrying about what, you know, potentially was going to happen to her if she kept kind of sneaking out of the house at night and running with the wrong crowd. That misbehavior starts to show up in the police records sometime around the summer of 2004, when Jenny was 15. That July, Jenny ran away with the boy next door. The police found her the next day. When the police contacted Sohela, though, she said she didn't want to take Jenny home because she was tired of Jenny's unruliness. The police took Jenny to a local youth crisis center. Then Jenny ran away from that facility, too. It's unclear how long Jenny was missing after that. The police checked in with her family in September, and they reported that Jenny was back home. A few months later, in November, she ran away again. She apparently snuck out of her bedroom window and got into a car with two men. All she had on her was a large suitcase and $30. Jenny called her family a few days later. She said she wasn't coming home and everyone should stop looking for her. This time, she was away for 23 days until the police eventually found her near Fort Stockton, Texas, 1,400 miles from home. And when Jenny was under her sister's roof, Sergeant Smith told me, Sahela started reporting that Jenny's rebellious behavior was turning physical. It was right there towards the end, Tim, when we lose contact with them as a family that it's kind of escalating, if that's the right word to use, that, you know, now she's taking out the aggression on them for trying to make her do right. How did you see it escalate or what was escalating? The sister is conveying to us that like, hey, He's getting a little bit more aggressive. Like at first, they're conveying to us that like she's verbal about pitching a fit when they're not, when they're conveying their thoughts or feelings about who she's hanging out with, when they're following the missing reports and having to go get her and those kind of things. And it was like they were conveying to us, and now it's becoming a little bit more volatile. He's becoming a lot more vocal. He's becoming stronger now. A few months after Jenny returned from Texas, in February 2005, that all came to a head. According to a report taken by the police, Jenny came home one night and got grilled by Sahela about where she'd been. Sahela had spotted Jenny hanging out with a couple boys in the woods near the family's house. And when Sahela pushed for an explanation, Jenny responded, it's none of your fucking business, and tried to leave. But Sahela was blocking her way. Jenny attempted to push by. When that didn't work, she struck her sister repeatedly over the head with a hairbrush. Then Jenny got into a car with the two boys from the woods and drove off. When police reached Sohela, she was bleeding from a quarter-sized laceration on her head. She told the responding officers that this was not their first violent interaction. Jenny had struck her before. In the end, Jenny was arrested for domestic battery. She was just 15 years old. But this isn't the incident that really caught my attention. I uncovered an even more disturbing episode, right around the time Jenny first ran away from Sahela's house. Back in July 2004, according to a police report, Jenny was admitted to a youth crisis center, and a counselor there told police that Jenny had said that she wanted to kill herself. 
In fact, Jenny apparently told that counselor that she had already tried to commit suicide a year earlier by overdosing on pills. So, Jenny Kazemi was violent, and she apparently tried to take her own life. This wasn't the Jenny that friends had told me about. They painted her as this innocent, fun-loving girl. They said she'd never handled a gun before, that she was afraid of blood. They told me almost across the board, there was no way Jenny could have murdered Steve McNair. But one person did go the other way, hinting at a darker side. When I spoke to Christy Rudolph, the friend who took the key off Jenny's hands for a while, Christy said Jenny did have some troubling jealous tendencies. After Jenny broke up with Keith Norfleet and started seeing Steve McNair, for example, she said Jenny continued to monitor Norfleet's personal life. I go to her house and she'd be on the computer. She had the passcodes to her ex-boyfriend's social media and she would be in his private messages uh, monitoring the messages he had with other girls. And she would dwell on them and look at them and and read every conversation that he had with his with new girls that he was talking to at the time. And I'm like, Jenny, you can't do this. This is going to drive you crazy. You can't sit here and dwell on the past. You know, you need to move forward. She's like, men are just sick and I hate men and da-da-da-da. And I'm like, well, you know, just move on, move forward. So One time, Christy said, this actually led to a physical confrontation. She went to this girl's house that was talking to her ex-boyfriend. I, I don't know how she found out this girl's address, maybe through... Um, her ex's personal messages, which she was monitoring at the time. But she went to the girl's house and they had a physical altercation. They got into a fight. She told me that I just wanted to go over to her house and ask her a couple of questions. I didn't know that it was going to get physical. She's the one who pulled my hair first. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, yeah, of course it's going to get physical. So, And supposedly there was two girls there. So I think that she got ganged a little bit. You know, that's why I was like, well, you should have called me. You shouldn't have went there by yourself. You're crazy. These were stories I hadn't heard anywhere else. Maybe Christy saw a side of Jenny that others hadn't seen. Christy says Jenny confided in her that her father had killed her mother. And that one detail, whether or not it's true, really colored the way Christy looks at Jenny now. I asked her, does she think Jenny killed Steve McNair? Me and my cousin Kayla were both in the camp where we felt like she did because we kind of knew her background, you know? We kind of knew that she was troubled. And Kayla even said herself that she felt like Jenny was lonely. And she was. So there's a possibility. It's hard to think that somebody would actually turn out normal if you've witnessed, you know, the murder of your own mom. Like, you know, that's gonna have a big effect on your life, you know? Christy Rudolph mentioned this cousin, Kayla, a few times. Kayla had apparently been part of the same clique. She was friends with Jenny too. Christy gave me Kayla's number, and we arranged to meet, but then Kayla rescheduled. And in the end, she didn't show up for our meeting. She ignored my messages, and then I never heard from her again. Kayla apparently had reason to evade a reporter all these years later. At one point in their investigation, the Nashville police got a tip that someone, someone who looked just like Christy Rudolph, may have removed items from Jenny's apartment on the afternoon of July 4, 2009, the day Jenny turned up dead. The police eventually interviewed Christy and confronted her about this, but she denied it. She said her cousin Kayla had been the one over there that day. The two of them look alike, she said. There must have been some confusion. And the inquiry went nowhere, it seems. It should surprise you not one iota that this is another point of obsession for Vincent Hill. He showed me an email correspondence with one of Jenny's old neighbors, who shared that, yes, shortly after the news broke that Steve McNair had been murdered, Jenny's balcony door was left ajar, 
and a silver car was parked out front, packed with clothes and other items. And Vincent has long been fascinated by this little tidbit. Who robbed Jenny's apartment? There's another twist to all this. For what it's worth, I discovered on my own that Christy Rudolph is Facebook friends with Adrian Gilliam, the guy who allegedly sold Jenny the gun she used to murder Steve McNair. When I interviewed Christy, I had asked her if she knew Gilliam, and she shrugged off the question. Jenny had people over all the time. Christy didn't necessarily know all their names. Maybe she met Gilliam, maybe she hadn't. Really, it's a classic Vincent Hill rabbit hole, meaning something feels off here. It seems as though there's something missing, and it leaves open the window for deeper suspicion. You can start to understand what's pulling Vincent in. If everyone were being totally honest, if every story checked out, it would be a hell of a lot easier to swallow the narrative that the police ended up on. I had hoped that maybe the police could provide some answers, that maybe they could fill in the gaps and clear the air and all the rumor and speculation. Maybe they could point me to all the little details Vincent was missing. But it wasn't happening. Back in the police station, I asked about Gilliam. I asked about Gaddy. I asked about Michelle McNair. I asked about all these theories I'd come across, not just from Vincent Hill, but from people who were close to Steve and Jenny, people who knew the case and had nagging questions about odd little details. Pastiglione and Robinson answered some of these questions, and they gave half answers to others. But they dismissed all of them as unimportant. The information we had from the gun, tracing back who bought the gun, who came into possession of the gun, and how she ended up with the gun, it's just a the totality of everything we investigated that came to that conclusion that she did it. There was no proof or anything that anyone else was in that condo other than her and Steve. I had so many questions. I wanted to ask more about the science of the crime scene. I wanted to figure out how they were comfortable with this alleged gun sale. I wanted the interview to keep going. But Don Aaron, the Nashville PD spokesman, had been keeping a close eye on the clock. I'm sure you've heard Wrap all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. done. Okay, we're done. okay. okay. I no, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Charles, thanks so much. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if we cleared that, cleared up anything or no, no, any no, questions. You, I mean, so. you, you know, like Don said, you know, I could go on for another 30 minutes. Oh, but yeah. no, no, you know, I appreciate it. I may have run out of time, but Vincent Hill hasn't. He's still trying to get this investigation formally reopened. We'll tell you where the Steve McNair case stands now, next week on Fall of a Titan. Still to come on Fall of a Titan. And they keep going back to, I don't have any physical evidence. But my argument is, if you let me see the crime scene photos, I guarantee you, I can show you how this doesn't match up. When you are innocent, you'll make yourself available to share information. And because this is so guarded, it's just drawing more red flags to everything. They won't give up those crime scene photos. Wait, what are you hiding? All these people are circumventing a simple interview. There's something wrong with that. I think the last question they asked were like, well, who should be charged for these murders? Hi, this is Tim Rowan, host of Fall of a Titan. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our hub page at si.com slash McNair, where you can get documents, videos, and more material associated with the case. 